This is PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Each podcast features local C-level executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward-thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank for New England, and I'm joined by my co-host, Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal. In this episode, we're joined by Lee Pelton, President and CEO of the Boston Foundation. One of America's most respected thought and innovation leaders, Pelton joined TBF earlier this summer after a decade as president of Emerson College. Lee, thank you for joining Carolyn and me for this episode of PNCC Speak. We're thrilled to talk to you today. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much. Terrific. Leah, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. What are three words that your colleagues would use to describe you? (laughs) Well, there are probably many more that I won't repeat here, but uh, the three that are probably most favorable, and I see this in the press often, would be that Lee is empathetic, which I hope is true, that he's creative, and that he's visionary. So those are the three adjectives. I like those. I like those. And uh, and three great words for sure. We've heard you say with this role that you now have at the Boston Foundation that you've been preparing for this for a long time. And I wonder if you could share with our audience some of the experience that have you know shaped and informed who you are and your vision as you move forward. Well, first of all, I mean, I it is still true that the nation looks to colleges and universities to solve its most important and pressing problems. And while our collective mission is research and teaching and learning, we are most importantly instruments of change and transformation. Whitehead said that we provide our students with visions of greatness. And so that's what we do. But it also means that as a university in a college that we're not just there for students, but we're actually there for the larger society. And so the presidents play an important role in shaping our society and the values and the way in which we look at the world and the interdependence that lies within. Now, I think unfortunately the presidential tribe, which I was one, has moved from this position not all of presidents, of course, but but generally speaking, have moved away from this position. Universities are not corporate entities, as uh, some people charge. We have a very distinct corporate structure, and that is to say that our customers are also our products. And you may say this for cultural institutions as well. That is to say our customers come in, they're students, but they're also something happens to them while they're here. So they're their product of their four years here. So we're not corporate in that way. But I do believe that college presidents, that some of us have sacrificed our duty as presidents to engage in big, important issues on the world stage. You know, and I sought to do this in my own work. After Sandy Hook, I got 350 college presidents to sign a letter that that we sent to President Obama asking for what was then called sensible gun laws. And I must tell you, getting 350 university presidents to agree to anything is a miracle. My letter to the community after George Floyd's murder last year, it took flight. There's seven or eight million people around the world had eyes on it. 
Forbes that summer said, here are four or five pieces that you need to read to understand what's going on. And, and that letter was at the very top of those five. And so I've been engaged in the larger society for as long as I remember. And I've used my platform as a president to do that. And one reason I came back to Boston, quite frankly, is not only to be president of Emerson, but I wanted to be deeply engaged civically in a city that I that I loved, even after a 25-year absence. And so I've been, you know, I've been involved in a lot of organizations, uh, GBH, the MFA, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. I was chair of the Boston Equity Fund last year under then Mayor Walsh, mm-hmm. and so on. So there's a long list. And I, I suppose if you were to look at a graph of my week when I was president, I would say that 25% of that would be civic leadership. Lee, if we could take a pause here and go back a bit to early in your career, right? If we, if we were to ask, and you studied and then taught literature, yeah. Yeah, who provided you with that image of greatness? What, and what inspired you first to become an educator? Yeah. Well, you know, I studied English, British, and American literature, mostly poetry, but some prose in the you know 19th and early 20th centuries. I was inspired by my, quite frankly, and I mean this sincerely, my religious upbringing to study literature and specifically poetry. The King James Bible, which uh, back in the day I could quote large, large uh, portions of that because we had to remember, we had to memorize passages and maybe this is, I'm not new here, for Bible study and so on. The King James version of the Bible for me is just beautiful language. It's poetic. And part of our studies was to do a kind of exegetical work. That is to say, look at connections, for instance, between the Old Testament and the New Testament to see which symbols and tropes reappear uh, throughout the Bible. And that's what you do in poetry and prose. You're looking for symbols and tropes. You're looking for connections. You're trying to develop themes. And so I describe myself as a textualist. I see the world through a textualist lens. Social constructs are texts. People are texts. Operating budgets and balance sheets, both of which I love, uh, they're also texts because these are narratives. And so I see the world through the lens of uh, trying to extract meaning or extract the narrative out of the text that I encounter. So that was the beginning of my love for poetry. I was, um, I loved poetry in high school, studied it, and um, then of course went on uh, to Harvard to get a PhD. And when I was at Harvard, I was teaching, I was also a residential dean of one of the Harvard houses. And that experience changed everything for me because I, as much as I, love the contemplative life of, you know, the library and research. I love even more the active and the actively visible life of leadership. And I learned that at uh, one of the Harvard houses. And I remember thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to develop my capacity to create and strengthen communities 
And uh, the best way to do that is academic communities. The best way to do that, of course, would go, as we used to say, to the dark side and and become a dean. And that's what I did. I was dean of Colgate University uh, for five years and then was dean of Dartmouth College. Then I was president for 13 years at a small college out in the uh, Northwest and then came back to Emerson again after 25 year, came back to Boston uh, to Emerson after a 25-year absence. And my uh, mantra, if I may call it this, which uh, this is a paraphrase from Daniel Burnham, who was a great architect in Boston. He built Filene's basement, by the way, uh, was the architect for that, and uh, and also in New York. Uh, But he said, but make no little plans, because they have no magic to stir people's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and in work. I try to live by that. Um, Love that. And uh, everything that I do. So as head of the Boston Foundation, from that perspective, you know, you talk about your experience in actively being a civic leader. So what have you learned so far as head of the Boston Foundation about philanthropy from that perspective and about the city? Yeah, well, you know, I'm new to the world of philanthropy in this way. Bart Giamatti said when he left Yale to become baseball commissioner, he said that being a college president is no way for an adult to make a living. (laughs) (laughs) And someone else said that a college president is someone who lives in a big house and begs for money. So now uh, I get to give away money (laughs) rather than having to uh, beg for it. And that was, I guess that was part of the attraction. But I I will say this, and this is important. We are a community foundation. You know, I sit on the, I'm a trustee at the Bar Foundation. We do great work there. But the center of what we do is uh, nurture the community here. We have three parts of our work at TBF. One is civic leadership. Another is for our donors and, and helping our donors to increase the impact of their philanthropy. And the third part, of course, is our communication, uh, public relations, especially around research and our ability to convene and develop partnerships and shine a bright light on issues. But the way in which we are different from private philanthropic organizations is that civic leadership sits at the very center of what we do. When I say civic leadership, I don't simply mean we're civic leaders because we hold forums, that we bring people together to collaborate on ideas, that we do research. Those are the instruments of civic leadership. But civic leadership, from uh, my vantage point, is that we will be innovative, creative, daring, bold, even outrageous. Lee, you're also confronted with the challenges of the pandemic. How is that impacting your strategic planning? And going back to your Daniel Burnham quote, right, which is, you know, make no little plan. I assume you're making big plans. Well, we are. And of course, you know, we're, at least we were at the tail end of the pandemic. But during 2020, the TBF was able to distribute $215 million dollars in grant funding for the city and the region. That was an absolute record for us. 
Most of that came from our uh, so-called donor advised funds. And these are the people who co-invest with us as a way and maybe set up their own funds and can use that for a very number of uses. And a lot of that $215 million was directed towards the equity issues that I just mentioned above. So when I talk about these issues, these are not new, but we may talk about them in a different way than we did before. We still have a lot of work to do. And I think we all know that we talk about the pandemic, but it's really a triple pandemic. It's the COVID-19, of course, it's economic devastation, uh, and then the economic and racial disparities uh, were exposed. And these are disparities that have long plagued our city and our nation. And so that we were really dealing with uh, three pandemics, not, not just one. So what would you describe as the role and the impact of the business community in advancing the mission of the foundation, you know, to make Boston that vital, prosperous city where justice and opportunity are extended to everyone? What's our role in that? Well, you have a big role to play because you have resources. Obviously, the pandemic has had a profound impact on how our businesses operate. I just saw a piece of data that showed that we had record resignations in this nation in April. Four million people resigned from their jobs. A lot of that was in the hospitality industry, and there are a lot of reasons uh, behind that. But the pandemic gave uh, most of us an opportunity to look anew at what we do, how we live our lives, the relationship between our work world and our family uh, and what we do outside. Uh, And so you have a number of people who I I know, kind of older people who were thinking they might work for five more years, decided to resign. Uh, They had a number of people who, who, you know, they made quality of life decisions uh, in their resignation. So that's just one example of how that's an enormous impact uh, on the business community. You know, the, the Greek word for crisis is change. And so here's a simple advice. You have to seize, despite all the challenges, seize the opportunity that this pandemic made to rethink, reimagine, even improve your business model and assumptions, and to rethink your connections to making uh, this city a more equitable place to be. Because we know that despite all of the wonderful gains that we have made in this city over the years, it's still, uh, to use Winthrop's phrase, this this city on the hill, it's a tale of two cities, Mm -hmm. one prosperous and well off, and the other struggling to meet ends. And so that I hope that our business community, and I know they already have, will leverage their resources to to bridge the gap between those who have a lot and those who don't sit at the table of uh, bounty. Absolutely. Great advice. Yeah. Lee, I'm sure many leaders are in your ear hoping to plant a seed of an idea or offer their perspective. What is some of the best advice that you've been given or have picked up along the way? Well, you know, given, you know, my new role, 
the conversations that I've had with business leaders is really around business equity and how businesses in partnership with us and, and other entities can begin to close that gap. And I know a number of organizations are seeking to do that. And, you know, there are a variety of ways in which to do that. And I mean, it, it's been a lot of conversations over the last year about the supply chain, obviously, and, you know, leveraging the supply chain to support local and regional businesses owned by people of color. In my own industry, if I may call it that, colleges and universities, when we look at the procurement uh, overall of um, activities of colleges and universities, less than 5% of those procurement opportunities go to people of color. That must change. And I know the business community, you know, there are programs like Pace Centers at the Chamber and, and others that are working on this. I know that uh, BECMA, uh, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, under its very capable leader, is uh, looking at this as well. What is your best advice to Boston C-suite and future executives? Well, two things. One is to lead with humility. That doesn't mean lead without being assertive, but even in being assertive, to lead with humility. The second would be to recognize that what people want most when they come to work is a sense of belonging and agency. And this is especially true, well, I think everywhere, but especially true admission-driven institutions. They want to know that they are part of the mission. They have a role to play the mission of the institution, and they can participate in a strategic focus that's larger than themselves. And then finally, I would say, use all of your talent. Use all of your talent and not just part of it. And using your talent and bringing folks together across disciplines and departments will enhance and strengthen outcomes for you. And then finally, I would say this, we have a tendency to privilege credentials over talent. I've seen places make that mistake. And I would say, stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, you want talent. Credentials are important, of course, but we sometimes privilege them and sacrifice uh, talent. And so we don't hire the best people. We hire the people with the best credentials instead. And that's a huge, massive mistake. So we're excited, actually, that we will be hearing from you, Amanda Agati and Deb Goldberg in a couple yeah. of weeks, we're sort of talking yeah. in greater detail about yeah. this. Uh, so that should be a really enlightening conversation. Mm -hmm. So with regard to that, you know, obviously, the past 18 months have been Turbulent, uncertain, to say the least. <laughs> the current months have been the same. But I wonder, can you share with us some of your observations on the economy and the future outlook of the city? Well, again, I, you know, I don't have the data at hand to back up what I'm about to say. But I can say, just from an anecdotal point of view, that most businesses, not all, outperformed their projections, the budget projections for the pandemic. 
that's certainly true for colleges and universities, for many of us. Emerson certainly did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean, and when I say outperformed, I'm talking about outperformed their projections. Uh, the state, the Commonwealth outperformed its projection, yeah. right? By, I think, at least a, a billion dollars or so. That's certainly promising. And so I think the future for businesses in our city is uh, bright. As I said before, I think businesses will have to sort of re-engineer the way that we work. And obviously, people have a different orientation to work. And a lot of us will it'll be a hybrid combination for, for quite a while, maybe permanently, uh, where some staff are working or some of us are working hybrid um, and virtually and, and coming into office periodically during the day. So it's, you know, it's a matter of seizing the moment and looking at this crisis as a place of change and also uh, opportunity. Definitely. And as a a quick follow-up to that, specifically from your perspective, what are you optimistic about and what worries you? One or two things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from an economic point of view, I, although I'm, you know, I'm bullish on the future, but I am so worried about inflation, you know, and I uh, keep an eye on, on that because it can unravel a lot of the progress that we've we've made. And uh, so I watched that intently. Lee, thank you for your perspectives and color. We'd, we'd love to shift gears a little bit and close yeah. out with some rapid fire questions. Yeah. So off the top of your head, I hope you're ready here. What are you currently reading or watching? <laughs> well, I, uh, I don't watch TV so much, so, but I'm rereading The Color of Law. It's a book by, I think it's Richard Rothstein. And he talks about the uh, systemic and structural policies, many of them laws that led to housing discrimination and a diminution of of, uh, wealth for folks of color, particularly black Americans who didn't have access to capital, but rather had access to debt. And uh, it's a great book. It's called The Color of Law. I think this is my third read. Um, I finished uh, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, which is also a brilliant book in which she makes a simple but profound observation that racism impacts everybody, not just people of color. It impacts uh, all of us. And she has as her her donay, there's a great enterprise of building municipal parks in the 60s. And she talks about a municipal park, I'm not going to name the town, but in a southern city that was closed off to its black residents. And the black residents sued to repay taxes too. We should be able to come and uh, swim in the swimming pool. And the way they responded to that was by closing down the swimming pool. Mm. Mm. So nobody had access to it, no matter who you are. And they eventually closed down the municipal park. That's the metaphor. That's the trope for her book is that racism hurts everyone. I think she's absolutely right about that. Yeah. Next rapid fire question. What's your favorite spot in our city? Well, it's become two places recently. It's the uh, Arnold Arboretum Mm. and Franklin Park. And so I just moved close to both and they provide me with this enormous delight and wonder and joy. And I try to, I'm close enough to the Arboretum that I try to walk there every day. And it's a beautiful spot. It's just incredibly refreshing. Yeah. yeah. So, 
what do you love most about Boston and the city? Well, outside of the Red Sox, <laughs> and you know, I've had a love affair with the Red Sox since I'm really going to date myself here, 1975, that famous World Series with uh, Cincinnati, which, by the way, changed baseball, you know, because baseball was on a steep decline, but it revived, it resuscitated uh, the interest in baseball, you know, and, you know, the sixth game and, and, and uh, Fisk willing, as Doris Kearns Goodwin once said, you know, willing the ball to stay fair <laughs> rather than to, you know, and this is a very talented city. It's multidimensional. And, uh, you know, with our business community, but also our biotech community and our, you know, really bright young entrepreneurial communities. And it's a, you know, it's a livable city. It's sort of like London but I think better than London from my point of view, because it's a city of neighborhoods. It's three-dimensional and very livable, unlike, you know, living in Manhattan, where I know there, there are those who love it, uh, but I, I love the neighborhoods here, and they're so varied and wonderful. What makes you laugh? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I laugh. I laugh at myself a lot. And I, uh, I have a, a daughter who's a comedic writer, and uh, she's the youngest of three. And uh, she, she makes, you know, so she makes me laugh. I, you know, I'm generally a joyful person. Certainly try to be. So I, uh, I laugh at a lot of things. And finally, Lee, do you have a wish for Boston? Well, it's what I said earlier, that we would seize this opportunity that the pandemic has given us to write a new chapter uh, in the city of Boston and for its future and current residents. That's what I would hope more than anything else, that we would seize the moment, develop some big ideas and seek to bring about change and transformation in Boston. One of the, re and I just want to say this as an aside, one of the reasons I wanted to come back to Boston and be civically engaged is because I think Boston has more social capital than any other city in the nation. It is immense. And I wanted to be part of that ecosystem. And I'm happy to, in my new role, to to be a part of that in a very special uh, and compelling way. I agree with you totally. And uh, I can see why you majored in poetry. I think as you speak, uh, the words that you, you make, uh, common sense things sound poetic and, and uh, aspirational for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston search PNC. Subscribe at the Boston Business Journal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.